Welcome to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. The Work of Art is a series of conversations with some of the world's leading writers, musicians, photographers, artists, and others discussing their creative process and their creative lives. Today's guest is theater artist Charlie Varon, a playwright, performer, director, and teacher. One of the driving forces at San Francisco's solo performance theater, The Marsh, some of his best-known shows include Rabbi Sam and Rush Limbaugh in Night School, which won two Bay Area Critics Circle Awards and the American Theater Critics Association's Osborne Award. As a director, he has shaped hit shows including Dan Hoyle's Ting's Day Happen and The Real Americans. He regularly teaches workshops on solo performance and writing for the theater, and he's currently working with legendary avant-garde cellist Joan Jean Renaud, formerly of the Kronos Quartet, on a new work, Duet for Cello and Storyteller. Charlie, thanks very much for joining. It is good to be here. Solo performance has had occasional breakout successes into the larger world, such as works by Spalding Gray and Anna Devere Smith. But in general, monologues are a smaller corner of the theater world. Why does this particular format appeal to you so much? Well, this is interesting. We were just talking about this in my solo performance class last night, where there are a couple of people who've done more traditional ensemble theater than they've done solo work. And I, if, if you have a two-character scene on a stage, two actors and an audience, what the audience is doing is observing the uh, interaction or the energy. Uh, they're observing what's happening between these two characters in the play, these two actors. When you're just one performer on stage, the transmission is a direct line from the performer to the audience, or ideally a circuit of energy going from performer to audience member to performer to audience member. And this, I think, is the, you know, goes back to ancient, the most ancient storytelling, which was one human being and a group of human beings around a fire and the what can happen there. So it's there is something um, I think that is elemental, that is fundamental to being human, and there's this direct storyteller or performer to audience connection, which as storytelling becomes more and more digitized, more and more mediated, more and more coming to us through screens, I think there is something increasingly precious about that elemental performer to audience connection. How much relies on the writing and the rehearsal? We're in a wonderful explosion of storytelling, especially in the podcast and radio world. The Moth, the Moth and uh, Porchlight and a million other speaking uh, selected shorts. That is told from script. The Moth and Porchlight and some of the others are amateurs, just speaking from their own experience. Whereas your works are carefully scripted, workshopped, polished. Uh, is there a different meaning to those two types of art, or are they just uh, different styles along a single spectrum? I think they're uh, all on the spectrum. Uh, so you could say solo performance is a spectrum disorder. 
<laughs> and those of us who practice it, I mean, what's it Jackie Mason said for for one person to get along, get on stage by themselves? That there has to be some chemical or emotional imbalance. Um, but uh, no, I I I'm a you know I love what can happen with scripting with the the way you can sculpt words and ideas, the kind of surprise, uh, what premeditation or all that craft and struggle. I'll put three years sometimes, four years into a play, a solo play. Where is the line between storytelling and theater? You know, at its best, great storytelling is the, can, be, can be theatrical. Um, I was just working with uh, Penelope Whitney, who is a storyteller, a natural storyteller. She's marvelous. Uh, and she played me 14 minutes of what she had done at, I think it's called Fireside, a storytelling series. And she had done this thing for 100 people. She had, you know, made some notes. She had thought it through in her head, but it wasn't sculpted or rehearsed. It was, and, and there was this wonderful impromptu, she was discovering stuff in the moment she was discovering it with the audience. You could feel the, the synergy between her and the audience. And so she brings this to me. And we start thinking about what are we going to do with this? And I say, well, if you want to sculpt it, it's got this story already, and it just in its sort of first incarnation, spontaneously, it's all these twists and turns, humor, and yet it was told as a very fluid, casual story. And so we're looking at it together in terms of what can you do next? You can sculpt the story. You can begin to use silence. You can use moments. You can return to moments a second time and see something different in them. And this takes a lot more work, but I think if she wants to do an hour, that additional work and sculpting and finding variety and different moods, and which becomes a more theatrical, uh, rendition of the piece, I think that will give a greater gift to an audience. Both are valid. Um, I'm interested in the more, I mean, my own work veers to the more complex, uh, chiseled, sculpted. Uh, and, and I also think that when you do that, when you try to become more theatrical, add more variety, find different moods and modes and scenes and ways of turning the story and looking at it from multiple points of view, you put yourself in a different path of discovery. You open yourself to uh, greater depth, greater truth. You surprise yourself more. You might learn more about yourself and how you see the world, which I think can be a richer gift mm -hmm. to an audience. So bravo that the moth exists. Uh, and all these storytelling series. I, my great hope for the culture is that those become gateway drugs <laughs> so that people, because they're so accessible, anybody can stand up for five minutes. Gateway for audience or for performers? For performers. It's so accessible, it's so easy. The time limit in, in a way is, is useful. I just hope they're openings rather than seen as the, the end all and the be all. A lot of the works that you've helped shape, particularly as a director and teacher more than in your own works, are first-person tales or theatrical memoir, if you will. 
Um, how is that different from writing and performing a story that's sort of farther from one's own life uh, when you're coaching people? Uh, advantages, disadvantages. On one level, I almost want to blame you for the rise of the Kardashians. You may not blame me for the rise of the Kardashians. I do not traffic in pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all about the, the performer yeah, story so we're, being we're living, we're, It's interesting. I mean, we're living in this, this era of oversharing. Uh, and curiously, I mean, the work that I'm writing, this strange hybrid of short story, are largely, I mean, they're about the generation, uh, a generation, my parents' generation, which I am beginning to think of as the generation of undersharing. So I, I do think, you know, and then, then we get to the question of, well, what in memoir, solo performance, when does it cross the line into self-indulgence or narcissism? If they're well told, if there is a true search for the truth, if there is a movement toward the universal, I don't think um, you're in Kardashian land. Uh, but I think this, as I mean, our culture is pretty confused uh, in the question of, we, we mistake exhibitionism for vulnerability. Say more about that. Well, that's actually as far as I've thought. <laughs> I was pretty proud of that little uh, aphorism. <laughs> Um, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to understand this, this, I mean, this, what is going on? Why, you know, why do we lift up somebody who's basically really good at sensationalizing their life without really much, uh, why do we, you know, why do we see that, get confused and think that that is a, a, a great uh, gift as a work of art, where in fact it's a first draft, in some cases a beautifully rendered first draft, in the same way that we seem to confuse artistic bravado with artistic bravery. Um, I suppose showmanship will always dazzle. Um, but it does seem to be something about the times we're living in where maybe it's a reaction to, we're still in reaction to the conformist period before the 60s when there, was so, there were so few stories that were genuinely, there was a lot of dishonesty, a lot of sham, a lot of um, conformist art, a lot of putting a nice face on things. And so then there was an explosion of storytelling saying, oh no, it is not thus. Things are complicated and messy and we have, you know, and I have had a rough life. And let me show you. And let me show you. And that is, that has been a huge step. The other part of it is on the craft level. When agents get memoirs, we often get to a point where it's just not working. Right. And the author in response will say, but that's how it happened. happened. Right. And our response is, I don't care what happened. Entertain me if you want 28 bucks in two weeks of my life. Right. What we'll often recommend is that the author take an hour, a day, a month to imagine the work as a novel just to free their own thinking for how might you craft a, a more shaped this story. This is exactly parallel to what I tell my students who are working on memoir or working on first person monologues, which is take a moment and become a playwright and think of yourself as a character. So I think at some of the best uh, first-person solo work, I think, has combines a, a writing from deeply within the character's heart and mind 
with a detachment and a distance and, and, and the performer jumping out of themselves to see themselves as a character, um, often with irony or detachment or insight. But I don't, I don't like telling stories about myself. I'm actually a shy person trapped in the body of a solo performer. And for me, it is writing characters that thrills me. I love characters are a kind of a passport for me to a different way of looking at the world. I like seeing the world through my characters' eyes. They will take me places I cannot get without them, um, and that's liberates a lot of energy for me. In your earlier years, you were deeply involved in political activism. Uh, you actually met the woman who would become your wife when you were both in court after being arrested at a nuclear power plant protest. That's almost correct, yes. I, and I hope we're not <laughs> violating any uh, no, desire fine. to keep that secret. I met her mother when we were both on trial. Ah, very nice. <laughs> Given those early years and the fervor that you clearly felt, how did you decide that theater rather than politics is going to be the career path? Well, I, I, I still think there's a lot of politics in my work. But, you know, it's, you've, at some point, what gives you joy, if you have a chance to spend as many hours of your life on what gives you the greatest joy, you make that choice. And I've been lucky to be able to make that choice. And for me, that is writing and performing and teaching and directing. How did you discover it? Were you a spieler in junior high school? Oh, no, I started. I think I, I, think I inherited some of it from my parents who met in the theater at Brooklyn College. My father was doing the lighting and my mom was on stage. And they wisely chose other professions. <laughs> um, but also, but they were, have been tremendously supportive, still are. My mom's 91, my dad is 88. And, uh, my, but my father was always doing voices and uh, telling jokes. Um, but were you? The voices, always, always voices from an early age. The, the magic, the mystery of what a voice, what the, what the human speech carries, the nuance, the energy, uh, how, it, how it embodies character. Plus, I grew up in New York. A very a polyglot city with you know big apartment building. We were one apartment out of 144, and there were accents all around. And there was, uh, I remember a, a doorman who is from Ireland, who had a lovely Irish tenor. Once one time he said, "Have you ever peeled a golf ball?" Words that have not uh, left me. All these decades. Nor have you ever heard them again. But uh, I went to a, 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 a prep school with an incredible variety of uh, teachers, um, with an incredible variety of accents that we always imitated. My friend uh, Mark and I uh, even did a uh, a little performance one time where we imitated the entire faculty of the school. And you were not suspended. No, I was suspended uh, because. I was the editor of the newspaper and ran an article about drug use at the school, not because of my theatrical endeavors. Uh, so, uh, so the voice has always um, the, the the germ of a, a piece will be a voice that I've heard, a, a character that it becomes. You're working now with a different voice. You're collaborating with Joan John Renaud and her cello is a centuries-old instrument, 
your voice is your instrument, are you, beyond the, the work itself as you shape it together, are you learning to use your voice differently listening to her play? Yes. Uh, this collaboration is thrilling on many, many levels, um, but I'm getting some new, I feel like I'm getting some new chops as a performer. This cello, uh, I mean, she is scoring, so what she's doing is scoring this short story, so we're turning it into a, a full duet. It's large. The music is large. It's, it has a scale that at times feels when you put it together with story, with words, it's at times feels almost operatic, that emotions get large, which in turn lets me get large vocally, give the words more time, more volume, more scale, which I think without the cello might feel odd or mannered. Also, there are times where our director, David Ford, uh, will say, match I want your I want the vocal rhythm to match the rhythm of the cello so then it becomes my my instrument my voice becomes something of a musical instrument uh, working in concert with Jones cello those are some of the little things I've noticed I mean I think there's more happening than that than I have words for yet I, I, I know something magical and mysterious is going on as we do this experiment You've chosen the life of the artist, which is fraught, risky, etc. You've also talked publicly many times about the importance for you of balancing kindness and humanity and menschiness with artistic ambition. Uh, years ago, I found a great quote from Marcel Duchamp. An artist should have no social obligations. If he marries, has children, he very soon becomes a victim. An artist must be an egotist. He must be completely blind to other human beings. He cannot create great things if he is only half involved and in doubt. And it goes on from there. What um, a perfect statement of that ethos. We have other plenty of examples in the world. In right. politics in every realm, Picasso right. treated everybody around him in ways that most of us find abhorrent. You, though, have a wife and children. You care about being part of your, an active part of your spiritual and artistic communities. Does it diminish? Does it pressure your artistic accomplishments? The two are intention. You need a certain... There is this kind of necessary narcissism in order to create any work of art. You need to be able to screen out the world. I have found that tension productive. Uh, the tension between the need for solitude and the need for the, the canvas of the work to consume you. To have that intention with being part of something larger, living a less deluded life, a life that lives in the real world of community, the messy world of community or communities, uh, the messy world of business, the messy world of interpersonal relationships from which you cannot ask an artistic exemption. You know, that to me is one of the great teachings of, of the Jewish life is you do not get a pass on being a mensch. That's why we're, you know, while we are here on earth to treat each other well, on a good day, you know, I think maybe we can, we can repair the world a little bit as well, but at minimum, don't make things worse. Uh, don't make a mess of things. Don't make a mess of other people's lives. Be decent. Does that diminish the art of those who don't live with that ethos? a Duchamp or a Picasso or a whomever. 
I haven't solved that question. I asked that question. It's, I struggle with it and I don't have an answer because you can't deny some of that great work. On the other hand, you know, if you think about life, the consequences of a life, what about the kids? What about the collateral damage of these artists' lives? So I can't solve that equation. I can only say that for myself, um, and it's not an easy, it's not easy to balance. And I, particularly, it was very difficult. I mean, I have memories of uh, when my kids were little, really being torn between the play I was writing, which was pulling me deeper and deeper and deeper into itself, and the desire to be a decent parent. Um, and I've had moments where those two clashed and came, kind of created crisis in my life. But rather than resolving the crisis one way or the other and saying, I forswear the artistic life, I'm going to be a, you know, a mensch, or say, you know, to hell with my family, goodbye. <laughs> you know, I'm moving to Corsica to write. No, I, I feel like living in that tension is being, situating yourself in the real world. And that, I think, makes me a stronger artist. That's where I've situated myself. I don't prescribe it. I just say this is, this is the path I have walked. I'm at peace with the trade-offs. As you move into creating works that are different from the original monologues, musical collaboration with Joan, uh, your duet, for lack of a better phrase, with Jerry Lynn Cohen, Forward, Life Gone Viral, is what comes next going to continue to broaden what you've done, or is it time now to circle back to the style that you started with? One of the more disconcerting moments in my artistic life came oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so ago. So in 1994, I did this show, Rush Limbaugh and Night School, which was a political satire. It was a romp. It was a, it was a lot of fun. It was a comedy. And empathetic towards the character. Why not? <laughs> um, that seemed like a more interesting artistic choice uh, to, you know, make, to, to find the good in Rush Limbaugh or posit that there may be some. And so that show was a you know, big hit in San Francisco, and I went off Broadway and nice run in Washington, D.C. But it wasn't, you know, all I had to say. It was, it was an earlier work, and since then I have had the luxury of working on many shows with an audience that some of whom have taken the whole ride with me as I go out on a limb, as it were. Um, I'm restless. I don't want to repeat myself. I want to take the next risk. I want to see what's, um, you know, I want to turn the corner and see what's around it. And you think you can keep that same connection with an audience that you do in that one I've lost some people. I know it. So in the, this was this moment I'm telling about 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, a friend of my mother-in-law said, after seeing a show that was not Rush Limbaugh in night school and was not, you know, a farcical romp, I prefer the funny Charlie to the philosophical Charlie. And what do you say to such an audience member? Well, it's been nice knowing you. Thanks for coming along as much of the ride as you can. I must continue. You know, uh, meanwhile, the form has also evolved. It's not just, it's not just content, but I've been trying different stuff in terms of form. So Rush Limbaugh Night School was a mock documentary. It was structured as a PBS documentary, complete with the omniscient narrator, which... I could say 
parenthetically, that omniscient narrator was a great discovery because of all kinds of storytelling efficiency that you could do that I hadn't discovered before. So I played with that for a while, and now I've kind of stumbled into the world of short story. And each of these, you know, each time I try something new in terms of form, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm alive. And I think I'm also losing some audience members, maybe gaining some others. In addition, we started off and you were talking about how the solo storyteller can develop a bond with an audience right? in a way that two or more people on a stage cannot because the audience is observing those two interact. Right. With Jerry Lynn, with Joan, musically, you're now in that two-person conversation that the audience is watching. Right, absolutely. How Though there are, in both pieces, there are elements of the direct transmission to the audience. It, it's their hybrid. How do you pull that off? What techniques do you use to maintain that bond with the audience so that they aren't just external observers of your conversation on stage? Well, you know, with um, the duet with Joan, it is such a new thing for us that I don't yet know the answer to that one. When we tried it out a couple of weeks ago for a dozen friends, whatever we were doing seemed to work amazingly well for them but exactly I'm on stage I can't see what's going on I don't I don't know exactly all I know is that it's you know I'm having a great connection with Joan we're both trying to tell this story she through music I through words and trying to and I, I trust that David is solving that problem as director but uh, yeah it's a risk and there's no guarantee that it'll succeed what is the outreach opportunity? We talked earlier about the explosion of pure improvisational storytelling. You offer, as you said, the next step. If that's the gateway drug, you offer as a director and a teacher and so on the chance to help those folks actually shape a work more powerfully and into something that's a work of theater, not just a work of storytelling. How do you reach those people from a pure marketing perspective or a communications perspective? That is a, another question I'm... I have no answer for it, but I'm trying to, you know, I don't do the kind of first-person stuff that the moth does, but my students have been going to the moth, and so my student Jeff Zorn won the moth slam two months in a row in San Francisco, so that was gratifying, and when people asked him about his work. He said, I've been working with Charlie Varon. So that felt like, you know, maybe, maybe some people will find me that way. I don't know. Um, or find uh, other folks who teach at the Marsh. I'm very proud of what we have built at the Marsh in terms of artistic community. I, I, I look at us as a kind of curators of the form of solo performance. I think, if I may brag, that I think our, you know, we have many people who have been working, David and I have been working together for 24 years. There are people who've been working 5, 10, 15 years, been working with Dan Hoyle, collaborating with him and directing his work uh, for 11 or 12 years. We just have a lot of experience with this form of solo performance and pushing the envelope in all kinds of ways and finding how to tailor the form to each artist's strengths, both as a writer and a performer. And so we have this kind of huge body of experience, uh, relationships, trust, a great artistic community. Um, 
and I think of it kind of as a tree. Uh, and what will happen is because we're a consumerist culture, people will come to the marsh, they'll see uh, a show that, you know, Brian Copeland or Echo Brown or Dan Hoyle does, or Jeff Hoyle. It's like plucking an apple. You know, it's like you, you look at the apple, it's, you taste the apple. Maybe you love the show, maybe you don't. But we look at it as, as, we, as you would look at any other consumer good. And you don't necessarily see that this apple grows from a tree that is 25 years old and has deep roots. That many have watered. And that many have watered. They don't know. People can see a show and not know that there may be, there may be one moment, one little bit of business or one little word or one phrase, something uh, in Dan Hoyle's show that I learned from a student 18 years ago who they've never heard of and who has never even finished a, a full-length show necessarily. Uh, so I'm hoping we can be a resource having all these relationships and knowledge and having tested the limits of the form and continuing to test it so that we can be there for other people who uh, are wanting to push, stretch themselves, see what they might discover. Today's guest has been theater artist Charlie Varon, a playwright, performer, director, and teacher. His best-known shows include Rabbi Sam and Rush Limbaugh in Night School, and he's currently working with musician Joan Jean Renaud on Duet for Cello and Storyteller, which is having its first workshop performances and uh, may go up as early as next year. March 2016 is our projected opening. Thanks very much for talking today. Thank you, Ted. You've been listening to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and will listen to many more. Our theme music is by Mental99 and used with their kind permission. A production of Ted Weinstein Literary Management, this has been The Work of Art.